welcome to the Moose Watch for free to buy. Keep it, keep it, keep it. It's too welcome late. Welcome to the Moose Watch for free to <laughs> podcast. I'm your host, Dylan, with my co-host. Gab. Today we're talking about what I think is a movie to watch before you die. But before I tell you about that movie, Gab's going to tell you why you're listening to us. Well, dear listener, you are listening to us because we got mad credentials. I am a former actor. I went to acting school. I have a degree in all things performance, character development, script analysis, and more. And I am a former video editor. I went to school for film, video, and interactive media. I worked for a few years doing the video editing. And now I just like watching movies and talking about them. And I hope you like listening about them. So... The movie we're talking about today is the 1967, what I'm going to call a classic, Wait Until Dark. If you've never heard of this movie, I highly, highly recommend before we get into all of our spoilers that we're going to get into, that you stop what you're doing, go watch it, and come back. Gab, do you want to tell the listeners what Wait Until Dark is about? What's this all been about? What am I working toward? You think you know everything about me, don't you? I die, but you're bottom. I bloody well ought to. Absolutely, I do. Which, by the way, is what Jim always says when Dwight asks if he wants to do something. Um, form is a, really? What is it? Form an alliance? Dwight goes, do you want to form an alliance? And Jim goes, absolutely, I do. Yes. So, um, Dylan, Wait Until Dark is a movie about a group of criminals who need to recover a doll that has been filled with heroin from the apartment of a woman who is blind. Was that the end of synopsis? Yeah, I was going to keep going, but I think that I think that's about the most concise way I can. I do think it. that is succinct and wonderful and probably pretty close to our IMDb plot summary. Well, let's find out. A recently blinded woman is terrorized by a trio of thugs while they search for a heroin stuffed doll they believe is in her apartment. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, you nailed that one. I spot on. You want to hear some taglines? I suppose. A blind woman plays a deadly game of survival. Okay. Pretty straightforward. 1967. Keep in mind, this is probably this has got to be the oldest movie that we've done so far, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So I, I definitely think, you know, they're, they're not coming up with like puns for these and things like that. Audrey Hepburn, the role you're going to remember whenever you're alone. Okay. Well, I'm not blind, so. Why would that stop you from remembering it? Well, because the idea is, of course, she's alone, but she's alone and freaking out because she can't see anything. I can see things, so I'm not worried about there being thugs in my apartment because I could just turn the lights on and look for them. Yeah, turn around. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, that thug's name is Corey. <laughs> You'd be nice. <laughs> now on the screen, all the taut suspense, the true drama of the long-running play. Okay. It was a popular play at the time. Yes, I know that. This one is probably the worst one of these. What did they want with her? <laughs> it feels like it feels like there's somebody with a microphone asking that after the movie. Like, hey, I just saw this poster. What did they want with her? Yeah. <laughs> What's the deal uh, with this? <laughs> it's very like, um, I'm Ron Burgundy. <laughs> Why should a killer fear a blind girl? Wait until dark and find out. That's dumb. And also, she's not a girl. She's a woman. I kind of like that one. But this is 1967. They're like, why should a killer fear some kind of broad old sport? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why should they be fearing this broad, eh? <laughs> the blinds moving up and down, the squeaking shoes, and then the knife whistling past her ear. Dumb. Dumb. I, I think, you know what? Dumb. That one I think is okay. 
none of these I think are great, but I think my favorite ones are probably Why Should a Killer Fear a Blind Girl and The Blinds Moving Up and Down, those last two. Okay. Okay. I'm glad you feel that way. I do feel that way. Now, before I get to opinion time, should we explain the movie a little bit more? Yes, I think we should. Dylan, why don't you give a bit of a in-depth synopsis? Okay. We start with Lisa, who is delivering this drug-filled doll. She notices when she's at the airport that she is being followed by who will end up being our main villain, Alan Arkin, as Rote. Um, So she decides that she has to get rid of the doll because she's trying to go into business for herself. She gives the doll to Susie, who is our main character, the blind woman, Audrey Hepburn, her husband, um, Sam, Sam Hendricks. Sam, being the nice guy he is, decides to hold the doll for her. You know, I'm sure they exchange enough information that she's been calling for the doll. But Sam does not know why the doll is so important. We start with... uh, in the apartment, two of the men, Carlin and Carlino and, oh boy, what's Richard Crenna's character's name? Mike. Mike Tallman. Carlino and Tallman come over and they realize uh, Lisa is dead. Rote has brought them here and has convinced them for the amazing sum at the time of $4,000 each that they will hide a dead body and terrorize a blind woman, which shows you how much $4,000 was at the time. I'm going to look up while you're talking what that would convert to today. Okay. The inflation calculator. Um, And throughout the movie, it then becomes sort of a chess game of them trying to trick her because once they know that she's blind, they assume that this will kind of be easy. Uh, Tallman pretends to be Sam's old friend. Um, Carlino pretends that he is a police sergeant and Roach pretends to be several different characters wearing a couple different disguises. Which Um, is crazy because she's blind. Well, one, he did not initially know that. And two, I assume it's partly for the amusement of the audience. Okay, pause. Dylan, I want you to guess how much money $4,000 in 1967 would be today. It's either, I feel like you're asking me means it has to be something crazy, but I'm going to say like 25000 More. Like a lot more? Is it like a million? No, no, no. It's not a million, but it's a, it's a good amount more than 25. Uh, 75,000. No, not that much. $36,040. You know, you could take or leave the $40 by that point, but yeah. Well, and 12 cents. I didn't want to, you know, get bogged down by the, <laughs> by the loose change in our pockets, but, you know, $36,040.12. That's first of all, what has happened to this country? Uh, that could be a, that would turn this into a much longer episode of us being very <laughs> like, sad. What the fuck? Do you know that that Gog and Pop bought their house in Levittown for thirteen thousand dollars? Remember when people could buy homes? I mean, I'll never have a home. It sounds like, <laughs> I live in, it sounds like it'd be cool. You can't see this, listeners, but I live in a cardboard box. <laughs> I'm just kidding. My yes, new but apartment. Somehow is she's beautiful. been stealing great electricity this whole time. <laughs> the Wi-Fi out here is wonderful. Um, yeah, thirty six thousand forty dollars. That's crazy. All is right, that anyway. enough that you would like threaten a, a blind lady for? No, absolutely not. No, especially not if I had to hide a dead body. I would have um, done it for free. No. <laughs> 36000 is not enough. But also, I believe they mentioned that these two men, Tallman and Coralino, had just gotten out of prison. I don't remember that. I remember them mentioning that they work with Lisa frequently and they normally do a similar type of 
jig where they sort of convince people and rob them through yeah. making it seem like something different is going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think basically, you know, without getting into too, too much detail, they think they're going to have an easy time getting one over on this blind lady, not realizing that Susie Hendricks is the world's champion blind lady, <laughs> self-proclaimed. And by the end of the movie, basically, she is trying to survive um, because once the jig is sort of up and she figures out that they are messing with her, they are no longer trying to play nice and they are more so attempting to threaten and get it out of her through any means. Well, and it's interesting because they also at one point convince her that her husband has been cheating on her with this woman whose doll it is and that he killed her. And you know so, what is, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say that she, you have this blind woman in a situation where now they have her pretty much like, con, not convinced, but they're trying to convince her that her husband is a murderer a cheater and that she needs to give over the doll to protect him. And she knows her husband so well and doesn't believe it that she's able to use her other senses to kind of like understand that they're lying to her. When I think a lot of people would probably, especially ones that, you know, can't see would probably maybe fall into the trap. So those who watched Netflix's daredevil series, it's kind of like that. <laughs> who somebody said to me, Somebody said to me, he's going to bring up Daredevil. Oh, it was Corey, the, the only fucking person I talked to. I had no plans on bringing up Daredevil <laughs> until, like you said, uses her other senses and that I had to do it. I'm literally like, who said this to me? Oh, that's right. The fucking person I live with, who I talk to every day, the only person I talk to regularly. It throws me off so bad if I'm talking to Giselle and I was like, yeah, I was telling you about that yesterday. And she's like, no, you weren't. I'm like, what the fuck else do I talk to? Right, exactly. It's the same thing. It's like I th there's no way I was having a full conversation with somebody else. Um, <laughs> All right, that's so funny. Should we get into uh, our opinions before we start to talk more on it? Yeah. Why? Uh, why don't you go first? In this critic's opinion, you know that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Well, I have a right to my opinion, and my opinion is you have no right to your opinion. From a screenwriting standpoint, this is the perfect movie for when you think of. Chekhov's gun. Um, you've heard that before, I'm sure. Yes. Where if you show a gun on the wall in the first act, that gun must be fired in the third act. You know yes. what I mean? And I think the thing I love about this movie is that, especially in what I would call a horror movie, a horror thriller, it's so normal for characters to be dumb. Like you, you are more forgiving of it, I think, in horror movies than anything else because characters have to be dumb so that they die. It's yeah. like in I Know What You Did Last Summer, Sarah Michelle Geller is running towards the parade, towards the people. She has been in a chase and she decides now's the time to stop in the middle of this dark alley and do a sigh of relief because I can see it right there. And of course she dies because it's like, well, she had to die. You know what I mean? Yeah. We want people to die. And in this movie, there's probably only like five characters and nobody is stupid. You know what I mean? Every single yeah. person in this movie, nobody ever does anything that you're like, well, that was dumb for the sake of being dumb. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I love that. Um, I also feel like everything, like each time I watch this movie, I feel like I notice more of like, oh my God, that makes perfect sense. You know mm, what I mean? Why things like happen. I was telling you before we started recording that Roger Ebert gave this movie three and a half stars, um, but he kept saying like, why didn't she just lock the door? Mm -hmm. And the reason she doesn't just lock the door is because at one point, Sergeant Carlino locks her door 
but holds the lock in so that when she thinks the door is locked, it won't actually go. Interesting. Yeah, that's a very common thing. I don't know if it's common everywhere, but that's a very common thing in New York City. It also especially makes sense on it's, you know, again, moves from 1967. It's an old apartment at the time. So, yeah, it's not like she had seven doors, seven locks on the door. You know, it's just the one lock that he manipulates. Although I would argue that if you are a newly blinded person who is trying to and and in the beginning of the movie, they do explain that she's trying she's going to blind school, which I thought was hilarious. Um, She is trying to gain her independence. So her husband is very much like, well, you find it. You do it like you have to learn. And um, I feel like I have to stop you there because I know Giselle wanted me to say something about her husband. Please give me one second. I love Giselle. I don't like Sam. I don't like his treatment of his wife. I don't like that he feels she needs total self-sufficiency. I'm not a fan of Sam. I appreciate that. And I agree. I also feel like at first I was like, well, yeah, she's clearly in her 30s. Like, it's about time for her to get some independence. And then I realized, oh, this is new. She wasn't always blind. So, like, fuck you. Give her a minute. I think they say it's within, like, a year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, relax with the self-sufficiency. But I did think it was interesting that a person who is newly blind um, doesn't have, like, a chain on the door. You know what I mean? Like, I I would feel like I would want to have multiple locks, especially, like, inside-only locks so that nobody could Again, I think at the time, the thought process would have been a lock's a lock. You know what I mean? I do think that it's also just a matter of it being so long ago. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, You know, keep in mind... People wouldn't even lock their doors during this time period. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. A lot of the time. Um, I also think what's great about this movie is, like you said, they try and do their normal shtick, which is, okay, you know, we are, we're going to convince her that her husband is cheating on her, you know, all these terrible things. And there's a great moment at one point where she's talking with Mike, who is one of the criminals, but the, the one criminal who does convince her enough to trust him. And she says, well, I'm forgetting one thing. I know Sam and I don't know them. You know what I mean? And I, mm-hmm. I think it's a great moment of her just outsmarting them and being like, I'm not just going to fall for it because they tell me something. Yeah. And I think at least it's such a great moment of the moment where she does realize um, she has this setup. So what they keep doing is they have a phone booth and their van is parked next to the phone booth right outside the uh, outside the building across the street. And she at one point really smartly, she's starting to figure out that they're sending signals to each other using the blinds, that certain things are funky. And she tells Gloria, who is like a kid who comes and helps her out because, you know, she's blind. Um, she tells Gloria at one point, okay, every time somebody goes in that phone booth and makes a call, the moment they come out, I want you to call me, let it ring twice, and hang up. And when that finally happens, after something with Mike, and she realizes that Mike is not real, it's such a great moment of like, it's the one one of those few moments where it has like a heavy music sting and you're like, dun dun, because she has such a revelation of oh my god everything has been lies you know what yeah. i mean um i feel like i'm doing a lot of talking here though so i want to start to hear some of your opinions about it what did sure. you think of wait until dark so i want to kind of there are a couple of things i didn't take notes but I, there are a couple of things off the top of my head that i didn't know i wanted to discuss and the first was that the beginning of the movie was a little confusing to me there was a lot of exposition about lisa and the doll and da 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 and like it was, you know, these these movies tend to be, the older movies tend to be much more dialogue heavy for setting up a story rather than I think in modern day, there's a little bit more like visual where they kind of like visually show you mm-hmm. what has happened. And in old movies, it, it can be very quick in these dialogues. Um, 
And also, like, keep in mind, like, sound mixing wasn't as good then. Like, so you're saying there was too much dialogue or that it was confusing? I'm just saying it was confusing because the way that the story is explained to you about the doll, it it all happens in dialogue between the criminals where they're in Lisa's or they're in Susie's apartment. Mm-hmm. And they're like, and, and you know, the the sound mixing isn't great in, in older films. The, the technology for audio recording wasn't as great. And they do use these like very era specific accents where sometimes it's like kind of hard to understand. Like, like the dialogue's going kind of fast and they're talking about blah, blah, blah. and it's See, that's like how I felt about the Great Gatsby, but I didn't find that with this. So I think that's no, interesting. No, 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 not at all. I, I had a hard time. I even texted you and I was like, all right, so I'm 70 minutes in. What is happening? And then obviously, you know, it, it kind of got to a point where it kind of didn't really matter. They just needed the doll and you knew there were drugs in the doll and the background about Lisa and who they were and who they worked for, it kind of didn't really matter. I don't think it matters that much. I think you're right. I do think it's part of the fact that the movie is sort of, sort of, I feel like it's leaving no stone unturned. So it's explaining to you exactly. Yeah. And you don't really need it. Like you could have just know that these three guys were together. Although even that wouldn't be as good because you need to know that they don't know Rote, which is Alan Arkin's character. Yeah. It's explaining to you why Alan Arkin is using them, why they know Lisa, why, you know, Lisa was, you know, killed by Rote. It's basically, yeah, you're right. It is a lot of, let's set things up so that we can get to, we're tricking Susie. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just a lot. It was a lot. And it it felt like. I needed to be taking notes to keep track of what was happening. And then once the, you know, actual action started, it was kind of like, okay, I, I'm, I understand enough. Like I'm good. Um, there is a scene in the very beginning where the two criminals are trying to find this apartment and there's a stoop full of like what appear to be nine to 12 year old boys. And I don't know if you've seen, yeah, I don't know if you've seen the recent like viral video where it's this guy acting like, He's like, hey, I'm a tough guy from the 1950s, and I like to smoke cigarettes and say bad words. And it's so funny. And I just immediately was like, oh, my God, this is hilarious. Where, like, they don't curse. They're not doing anything. There's just, like, these young, like, six really young kids sitting on a stoop smoking cigarettes and rolling dice. And it's, like, it's supposed to give the impression that, like, this is a bad neighborhood, you know? (laughs) It's just so stupid. Um. But all that aside, the only real opinion that I had about this, I have two two things that I could really discuss with you. Okay. The first of which is that I think this was so clearly adapted from a play because yes. the play obviously would only take place in the apartment. People are coming and going. Um, there are scenes that happen entirely in the dark and all we hear are people moving around. And, you know, all of that I think is so much better um digested live rather than in film version so i i to me it just felt like they had a play like you know when you watch and I, we've talked about musicals very recently um but you know when you watch like fox is is airing live the grease musical and it's yeah. like a those, but yes i hate it too and i hate it because it's like if this is meant to be seen live, if this is a play, I don't want to watch the recorded version, even like Hamilton on Disney Plus. I was like, Ugh, you know, it was good, but like I'd rather see it live because it's not meant to be on film. It's just not meant to. That's how I felt about this. Um, I, it I didn't, would like this better live. I do see what you're saying. Um, it just didn't feel like an adaptation of the play. It felt like the play. Which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing because I will say having watched, there's actually a recording of the play. 
mm-hmm. with Stacy Keach, who I don't know if you know him, but he, you know, famous actor playing mm-hmm. Rote. And I skipped through it a little bit. I watched like the very ending and I was like, this is much worse. <laughs> you know what I mean? Really? Well, I think having, <sighs> I think what's great about a play is that you know your setting because you can see the entirety of it. Mm-hmm. I think what's great about this movie is it does a good enough job during all that exposition in the beginning, during all of our setting up of showing you this apartment, what it would look like normally. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that I like about this is the fact that when you're moving the camera around, I know what's still there because I've been you know, shown it enough that I can understand the mechanics of the apartment without having to look at it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think that's more interesting when you get to, there's a very famous jump scare at the end right? Mm-hmm. We're seeing one portion of the apartment. We know that there is like Sam's little dark room type area, the bedroom, if you go further this way. And we know that Rote is in there. And when she's starting to walk away, we know that he's there. We know that that room is there. I don't think it's as interesting, like if I'm watching the play version of it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and and potentially that's true. And I'm sure there are things that the movie does better, but I think ultimately it just felt very much like a play. Like I I didn't know until about halfway through that it was a play um but i knew i I didn't know like for a fact but i knew watching it i was like oh this is clearly a play because it's yeah 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 um i also think the darkness probably works better in the movie than it would in the play i feel like i feel like it'd be easier to see things in the the dark no i disagree i think um in the dark i think i think when you're live as an audience member and and it's dark and you hear things actually happening it's more visceral than when you're watching a television that goes black and you hear things mm-hmm. um and i also think that the theater does has a much better um uh ability to create low light where you can kind of still see what's happening but it does you do understand that it's dark because when you're watching something live as an audience member you also have to strain your eyes to kind of see what's happening in low light whereas in a film they make sure you can see you just understand that the lighting is low so when you're watching a play you're feeling like oh it's kind of hard to see what's happening like the lights are very low and you can see people moving and you can hear things but you're also kind of like squinting and and trying to see whereas like they're never going to do that to you in the medium of film. Yeah, I can see both sides of it. Whereas there's an extent of with film when it is darkness, when I can't see what's happening, you immediately go to a place where you're imagining what's happening. Mm-hmm. Whereas when it's a, a show, I I know that they are limited by what they can do. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. But yeah, I can definitely I, see what you're saying. Yeah. So that was that was my number one thought on it. My second thought. Now, and something that I wanted to discuss. Oh, I'm sorry. Real quick on your first thought. that Did that make it a bad movie immediately? Or like that just was like you noticed that it was a play? No, I, I, I just think that as somebody who is obviously like very familiar with the medium of uh, or both mediums, mm-hmm. I think I, I would probably not. No, I know that I would prefer this live. I think it would have a bigger impact on my emotions live. I think it would have a bigger impact on my senses live. I think the story would have me, I think I would be more on the edge of my seat live than I was watching a movie. I think the only real defense I can say is you wouldn't get the same performances as you do from, you know, what I think are great actors in this movie. Sure. That leads me to my second point, which Mm -hmm. is that it is, unbelievable 
how different the actual like method and um you know school of thinking around acting is today than it was in the 60s Ooh, interesting in what way well Obviously, at that point, you know, acting for film was still a relatively young medium, whereas theater had been around, obviously, for, you know, forever. And in this day and age, in this in, you know, the the 60s and kind of like the early stages of filmmaking, as it really became popular, the style of acting was not terribly different. So people were, you know, today, when you study acting on the camera, you're very small in your gestures you're small in your facial expressions it's much closer to real life whereas on the stage everything is much bigger and i think in the 60s people were still studying theater as their main way of acting and so things appear very big and very large and people's facial expressions are very large and you know there's not really like a a differentiation between the two mediums and so you know there's still this like use of that transatlantic accent. There's still, um, you know, very big gestures. Like I'm thinking about like when they're kind of tiptoeing because they don't want Susie to know that they're in the apartment. And it's all just like, it doesn't look the way you would tiptoe if you were actually in an apartment that you were trying not to be discovered in. It's very like Bugs Bunny-ish where it's like, dude, dude, I don't dude, remember you know? what you're talking about specifically, but I guess I can understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, good thing or a bad thing? Or is it just like just a thing you notice? Just the thing I notice. And also okay. like it it just kind of takes me out of it a little bit because it I, I do feel like very, very good acting is like a very clean window. If you're looking out a window that's clean, you're not looking at the window. You're seeing what's on the other side, right? You're you're looking out the window. But when the window is dirty, you can't help but see the window and it becomes very distracting and it limits you from seeing outside. And so for me... Anytime that the acting is like, even if it is awesome for the time period, anytime it's like not a clean window, I'm not drawn into the story because I'm just observing the acting. And I was very, the only person whose acting I truly felt was, would have held up today was Audrey Hepburn as Susie, who was blind. I really like Alan Arkin also as Rose. I disagree. I think he's horrible. Really? Uh, uh, Well, first of all, I do just want to recontextualize. I wouldn't call it a dirty window just because it's not bad acting, but it's the style of the time. So maybe like a frosted window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either way, you know, <laughs> but it's wait, hard to why, see through. Why do you dislike Alan Arkin? In the okay, let me count the ways. Number one, um, I just don't think he he's obviously a sinister character, right? Like he's the brains behind this operation. And I don't think he does a very good job of appearing a threatening. Uh, to specifically our other two criminals who, you know, at one point he says something like, you know, your fingerprints are all over this apartment. They're like, well, we're not going to take the job. And he's like, well, your fingerprints are all over this apartment. And the only thing I've touched is, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, and that's I like, love. A, I love it too. But I just didn't feel that he had this like evil mastermind or like this sinister. He just seemed like a guy wearing weird glasses with a weird haircut and a weird accent saying things like i just i didn't I feel so threatening though you don't you don't feel he's threatening in the sense that he is obviously so much smarter than that yes correct and there's I a just... line he says towards the end of the movie that i love um let me find it here he's talking about yes so 
Mike Tolman tells Susie at one point, like, don't worry, Road is gone. We took care of him. We did a coin, you know, we flipped a coin and we decided Carlino was going to take care of him. We see that he kills Carlino in like what is very 60s and like he's he's being run over. You don't need to see it specifically. He he ran him over. He's dead. Yeah. We're indicating um, to you that he's being run over. We yes, just can't show I, you that. I think it's also maybe trying to hide to you. And I think it would have been much more, you know, I don't think I don't know if anybody would ever buy that Carlino kills wrote there. But maybe he's trying to hide which one of them dies during that moment. Um, but Rote comes back and he kills Tallman too. And he says to Susie, did you know they wanted to kill me? I did. I knew it even before they did. And I love that because it's like he wrote does this thing where he, again, he's so much fucking smarter than everyone. And I love that. And like, he's clearly, this is not his first time doing this. He is so threatening to everyone. He knows exactly what he wants and how he wants it. And I love that he's just thrown off by Susie, who is like, all right, well, I'm not going to do that. Like, he is pouring gasoline around the apartment at one point. One, to smother any evidence. And two, because he's threatening her, I'm going to light you on fire, which we find out she lost her sight in fire stemming from a car crash. Um, But Susie at one point picks up the gas can and just starts throwing it back at him when he has a lit match. And he's like, okay, it's fucking out. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, I but do feel I like, would he's argue, like he's clearly I would willing argue, to hurt her. Yeah, but everything you're saying is in the story. It's not in the performance. I guess that's true, too. Like the character, 100%. Whoever wrote that character, brilliant. His performance, I don't know. It didn't do it for me. And this is all extraordinarily subjective and, you know, whatever. And I, I do think that anytime we're talking about the validity of a performance, we do have to, you know, discuss that it is subjective mm -hmm. um, because, you know, he isn't this person and he's never actually been this person and none of us have actually been that person. So it's hard to say whether or not he does a good job. But I do not think like his performance to me was the most dated and he I just do not believe really captivated me. However, I think Audrey Hepburn as, you know, playing somebody who is blind was phenomenal because she yes. didn't do the indicating like the bang in her hands all over the place. And her eyes like were just so, you know, they were open, but they were not really looking at anything in particular. And she's not looking around much. And, you know, she reacts to sounds and it's just, it was so, so such a good performance. Like it almost made me think she must have walked around blindfolded for like two weeks before they filmed this. I know that I read somewhere that she spent time with actual blind people. Yeah. Before, yeah. You know? I mean, it was just phenomenal. And I think and she learned a little bit of Braille. I love that. And I think mm, the actor whose name I'm forgetting, who played Mike Tallman, Richard Crenna, Richard Crenna did a really good job, too, because you can you can see, I think, and, and maybe if this isn't intentional, then maybe I disagree and think he did a bad job. But I think he does feel sorry for her. And I think he does at some point kind of battle internally with like, do I really want to fuck this blind woman over? He Absolutely. doesn't seem inherently evil. And it's something that I feel like he, the only person who I think is evil is Rote, Alan yeah. Arkin's character. And I do feel like Mike Tallman has this great moment and it's sadly right before he dies, he's gotten you to honestly get to the point where you like him because even though yes. he's also like tricking her, he has been nothing but kind to her. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. sure, he shook her up a little bit and he's like, where's the doll? But he's never like, you know he doesn't actually want to hurt her. Yes. And I think he, right before he dies, he's like, this money isn't worth it. I'm out of here. We're done. You know, Rope's yeah. taken care of. We're just going to, we're going to call it and go our separate ways. Yeah. And that's, of course, when he dies and it becomes, Road, who is the only evil person here, is like, 
I'm getting that doll. I'm getting my heroin. I don't care what happens anymore. Yeah. 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 Um, I would also like to point out to you that you do know that it's Carlito or Carlino who gets run over because you can very clearly see the hat that he was wearing. Okay. So maybe they're not trying to hide that then. Okay. I mean, maybe I, they like, are, I but maybe they did there's a an job. aspect of that. But again, like who would, you know, who's that, wa- who that has watched the movie up to this point would be like Carlino, who is clearly like the bumbling stupidest one of these criminals definitely got one over on the most sinister smart one. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, that's really all I have to say. I'm going to see if there's anything else that I do have written down here. Okay. You know, what's another line that I really like when Mike Tallman is initially tricking her and he's not looking at anything. Like he's not looking at a picture, but he says that he was in Charlie company with Sam and he goes, Hey, there's one of me. Sure. I've put on a lot of weight since then. And it's like, what a dick. Like the way he's yeah, just not yeah, actually yeah. looking at anything. Yeah. I did appreciate that. Um, I think it happens several times, but there's a great moment where again, they think they're tricking her. And Susie says to Mike, is this apartment dirty because Carlino kept dusting things while he was in here. And like, yeah, you see them react like, Oh fuck. They're like, she, like they keep thinking like, this is going to be easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, I reminded of wag the dog. This is nothing. Like they keep yeah. thinking this is nothing. <laughs> and it's something. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. She does it again. Why has everybody been playing around with the blinds? And Mike's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> he's like, well, yeah. well you see, well, it was interesting. I, I I do think, and I said this to Corey when we were watching it, I was like, you know, blind, when you lose one sense, your other senses heighten. And I think especially when you lose your sight, your um, like intuition for like spatial things, like where people are, what people are doing, um, you know, that all is very heightened. And, and I was glad that eventually she, you know, indicated that she had an idea of what was going on because I was like, there's no way she doesn't hear people like, moving in certain directions and how come everybody ends up by the blinds yes, and when and they're I, finishing a conversation didn't you like that though isn't that such a smart reveal every time she shows like no i know what you're doing yeah 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 okay i think that i can probably get to it i will just say even though you think it would have been better to play did you feel the tension at the end because i like i get so fucking tense and i know how the movie ends when things are finally like we're all the way at the very fucking end and the only light left in the apartment is the refrigerator light. And even that gets cut off when she finally pulls the plug on that and it's total darkness. And we just cut to police on the way. Sam is finally getting back from, they sent him on like a fucking wild goose chase. Do you not, did you not feel like the tension there? Oh no, I felt the tension. Okay. Good. I was riding the tension. Good. So the movie did its job there. Yes. Should we get to some facts and then we can talk about our final verdicts? Fact me up. Face the facts, dokes. Facts have no place with an organized religion. So let's get to our facts. Should we start with, uh, yeah, let's start with some ratings. So okay. IMDb gives this a 7.7 out of 10. Hmm. Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter gives it a 96% with an average rating of 8.1 out of 10, 24 fresh reviews, and one rotten. The audience score, 91%. Average score, 4.2 out of 5. Uh, the movie is directed by Terrence Young, who also directed Gab's favorite James Bond films, Thunderball <laughs> from Russia with Love and Dr. No. The play was written by Frederick Nod. Uh, the screenplay was written by Robert Carrington and Jane Howard Hammerstein, who also wrote, and I think these are mostly Frederick Nod, Dial M for Murder, Kaleidoscope, and The Honeypot. The music is by Henry Mancini, who, do you know who Henry Mancini is? Uh, no. 
I only included it because I was like, oh, I famously know another song by him. The music to the Pink Panther. No way. Do 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 Yeah, very cool. Stars Audrey Hepburn as Susie Hendricks from Breakfast at Tiffany's, Roman Holiday, and My Fair Lady. Alan Arkin as Rote from Little Miss Sunshine, Argo, and The In-Laws. Richard Crenna as Mike Tallman from First Blood and Hot Shots Part Deux. Jack Weston as Carlino from Dirty Dancing and The Thomas Crown Affair. And Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. as Sam Hendricks from 77 Sunset Strip. He was also, if you're a 90s kid, Dr. Otto Octavius in Spider-Man the Animated Series. And Alfred in Batman the Animated Series. This has been a low-key way of me telling you that Batman thing. Mm. And... Let's see here. Julie Herod as Gloria. I was like, I got included. It's the last person, but this is like the yeah. only film thing she ever did. Thank God. She was, I think, on Broadway as this character as well. Well, it's okay. <laughs> Giselle also said something very specific about Gloria, too, that I want to find. She was Giselle and Gloria throwing the shit around and being a jerk to Susie. What Gloria did is definitely not nice to Susie. But Gloria's behavior is just a symptom of being a child whose parents are no longer around. So Gloria is just angry and releasing it to the person closest to her. But it's really a cry for help. So don't go too hard on her. Aww. Honestly, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, where are this girl's parents? And also, like, it's clearly not her fault. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to be way harsher, but I'm not going to now. Uh, Audrey Hepburn was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Lead Actress. Yep. She didn't win? She did not. Hmm. I did not look up what did. I don't care. <laughs> okay. Critics consensus. Nail bitingly tense and brilliantly acted. Wait until dark is a compact thriller that makes the most of its fiendishly clever premise. The movie was budgeted for an estimated $3 million and grossed $17.6 million, which was a lot for the time. <laughs> which uh, was the style at the time. Which was the style at the time. A couple of reviews, James Clayton from the Birmingham post. It starts slowly, but gathers pace with a compelling momentum that builds to a climax of great tension. Fine entertainment, but if you have a nervous disposition, keep away. Dave mm -hmm. Kerr from the Chicago Reader. This 1967 thriller draws its effectiveness less from the intelligence of the direction by Terrence Young than from the unbridled sadism of the concept. David Nusser from Real Film Reviews, a fairly timeless thriller that still ranks as one of the very best examples of the genre. Tim Braden from Antagony and Ecstasy. It has, in the form of Audrey Hepburn and Alan Arkin, two of the very best performances in the genre's history. And Mike Massey, final one from Gone with the Twins, while the conclusion is shocking, fulfilling the title as well, as Susie's attempts to level the playing field, it's Arkin's performance that really leaves an impression. Wild, but okay. Okay, some fun facts I have here. In an interview, Alan Arkin talked about Oscar nominations he received for his early roles, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. When asked if he was surprised that he was overlooked for Wait Until Dark, his second movie... He replied, you don't get nominated for being mean to Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> That's funny. During World War II, 16-year-old Audrey Hepburn was a volunteer nurse in a Dutch hospital. During the Battle of Arnhem, Hepburn's hospital received many wounded Allied soldiers. One of the injured soldiers young Audrey helped nurse back to health was a young British paratrooper and future director named Terence Young, who more than 20 years later directed Hepburn in Wait Until Dark. Interesting. I thought that was fucking cool. Yeah, that is cool. In his nonfiction book, Dance Macabre, Stephen King declared this to be the scariest movie of all time and that Alan Arkin's performance may be the greatest evocation of screen villainy ever. Wow. I mean, who am I to tell him he's wrong? But wow. <laughs> I thought you were just going to say he's wrong, though. <laughs> <laughs>
As a way to get people to see the movie, the filmmakers made a print ad and cautionary trailer that read, during the last... Aw, oh, I fucked it up already. Oh. During the last eight minutes of this picture, the theater will be darkened to the legal limit to heighten the terror of the breathtaking climax, which takes place in nearly total darkness on the screen. If there are sections where smoking is permitted, those patrons are respectfully requested not to jar the effect by lighting up during the sequence. And of course, no one will be seated at this time. It worked and the film became a huge success because of it. Wow. One thing I love though, can you imagine people lighting up in the movie theater? No, no. Like it's just weird that that used to be a thing in everyday thing. Yeah. Well, I'll never forget uh, my friend Scott. His mom once told me that she had a smoking room in the hospital when he was born. Which is wild. And I do remember because we're old enough that like I, we used to always sit in the smoking section when I was a kid. That used yep. to be. Oh, there. yeah. At the Chinese restaurant. Everywhere. Yeah. Although Audrey Hepburn is given top billing, she does not appear until over 21 minutes into the film. Yeah. They kept talking about Lisa. And I was like, oh, Lisa must be the blind Audrey Hepburn character. But no, no Lisa, Lisa is Samantha that character Jones. in the first two minutes of the movie. Yeah. After Susie knocks on the apartment door, Sam says, Susie, is that you? She answers, no, it's Batman. Ephraim yeah. Zimbalist Jr. went on to play Alfred Pennyworth in Batman the Animated Series. Oh, you yeah. love it. Batman. Uh, the film's climax between Audrey Hepburn and Al Arkin was number 10 on Bravo TV's The 100 Scariest Movie Moments from 2004. Hmm. One or two more here. Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments ranked this 10th. Alan Jones, a film critic, called it one of the biggest shocks anyone had had since Psycho, which Psycho's only like three years earlier, I think, but still pretty good. And director John Landis compared it to suddenly being confronted with death and mortality. Am I safe? Oh my God. A very effective moment. Producer Jack Warner of the Warner Brothers was against um, the total darkness in the last 20-ish minutes, but changed his mind after a screening at a 900-seat theater where the final moments of the capacity crowd gasping and shrieking with fright. Mm. Well, that's good. Alan Arkin said about Rote, he looks laid back, but he's like a snake. Laid back, just waiting. Mm. And Wait Until Dark reappeared on Broadway. There was a revival of the play opening April 5th, 1998, it only ran for 97 performances and starred Marissa Tomei as hmm. Susie and as wrote Quentin Tarantino. Wow. I so That's desperately crazy. would love to see that. Yeah. Oh, my God. That is all the facts that I've got. All right. Well, I guess it is verdict time then, huh? I guess there's no time left but verdict time. Do or do not. There is no try. The guilty will be punished. Sentence is death. I am still hopeful. You have left me in suspense enough that I'm not sure what you're going to say. But I easily think from what I think are fabulous performances and from what I think is unbelievably great screenwriting that this is a movie to watch before you die. I think that this is a movie worth rewatching. I think this is a movie worth paying attention to because everything comes back and matters in some way. And hopefully, Gab, you're about to agree with me. One thing I would like to point out, and the listener will not be able to tell, but I think what's really cool is that when we started this podcast today, we were both in natural lighting, and now we are both in darkness. And so I can only <laughs> yeah, see I half of your face lit. That. I'm dark. Um, crazy. So now that we've waited until dark, I will give you my verdict. Dylan, I'm going to start with the positives. I think that Audrey Hepburn, who I classically have just always assumed – and I have seen Breakfast at Tiffany's. I know this is the only Audrey Hepburn movie you've ever seen, but uh, she's seen. she's okay in Breakfast at Tiffany's. I think generally speaking, like, again, that genre of 
of movie just lends itself to this acting that we would not consider, like we would consider to be kind of ostentatious and over the top today. Um, so I've just always assumed that she was like a pretty face and an icon and a philanthropist, but maybe not like a, a what we would today consider to be a great actor. But man, oh man, was I wrong. She was phenomenal in this role. Her performance was amazing. I think that the story was great. And I would say if this were on Broadway, I would definitely get tickets. I think it would be so captivating to see live. I think it would be an absolute roller coaster. I think I would be gasping and and clutching my my armrest. But I do not think as a movie it really it it did it. And I just really think that it has two options. I think it is either a play. <laughs> Dylan is hanging himself um, with an invisible rope right now. I think it has two options, Dill. And I, I mean this sincerely. I think it either needs to be live so that you are viscerally in the room, feeling it. You're watching it happen live. The lights go out. You are in the dark. You're straining your eyes to see what's happening. I think you either need to be in it or they need to abandon the this is a one location film where we're just in the apartment watching the action and they need to make it more of a movie where it's more dynamic and there's less just dollying from right to left in the apartment and more like you know in the characters heads i i think it just needs to be more less of a of a play on film i really do i just think that took me out of it i felt like I, you know, scary movies scare you because you feel like you are there and you're in it and you're, you're experiencing it. And I just didn't feel that way with this. I think it just felt like I was watching Hamilton, you know, and people that are there are experiencing it. And I'm just kind of like a voyeur, you know? Oh, I cannot express my disappointment enough, dear listener, for what I think is a brilliant chess match of a film. I, I hope that people do watch this movie. I hope I know Pedro at some point will get to this. It's worth but watching. God damn it, it's great. It's worth watching. Um, but I think if if it happens to be at a theater near you and it's not being performed by, you know, your your postman, your, you know, butcher and the lady who takes the library books back at the library. I guess they call those librarians. Boy, these are some um, random things. You can, if actual <laughs> actors are performing this, you would say- If actual actors it. are performing it, go see it. Because being there, if it's done well, will be a an experience. And like I said, if it comes to Broadway or even off-Broadway, like I will be there because I want to experience it. But I just don't think it worked. But again, who am I to tell you that a classic film is not working? Like, that's just my opinion. That's just how I feel. I think it needs to be experienced and not watched. Sorry. I will still say this. Did you enjoy the movie? Yes. Had you ever heard of it before? No. That, I think, is a problem. I think this is a very underrated movie. And the fact yeah. that, like, I think I randomly heard about this once from... Some film critic I watched, it might have been like Dan Merle or somebody like that who randomly mentioned it as like a movie that he, you know, also talked about people not having watched enough. And I remember looking it up and finally getting to the point where I finally watched it. And I can tell you, I watched this the first time and it was like, oh my God, why have I not heard of this before? Yeah. <sighs> but boy, it's a, it's a sad moment to disagree on a, a great film. I'm sorry. I really am. I, I think you're great. You're one of my favorite people. <laughs> Thanks. Thank and, you. And, you know, what are you going to do? One last semi-fun fact, because I couldn't actually find it. There's a 2000s TV movie version of this that stars Helen Slater, 
who was Billy Jean in The Legend of Billy Jean as Susie. Oh my Hendrix. God. Is it good? I have no idea. I couldn't find it. I desperately tried to. Oh, damn it. All right. Well, if you ever find it, let me know. Um, and I, I'm going to promise you this right now, and everybody can hold me to it. If this play ever comes to Broadway, I will buy us two tickets and you and I will go. Down. 100% okay. down. Good. And then we can talk about it again. Um, all right. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I knew you were going to be disappointed, but I got to be honest. You know, I got to I gotta tell you how I really feel. Um, and if this podcast were called Plays to Watch Before You Die, I would be so on board. Um, Dylan, anything else you'd like to say to the people? Yes, something very important. That if you want to comment or leave us, nope, I'm fucking up. If you want to comment on YouTube, send you know subscribe to the YouTube. If you want to email us at moveswatchforyoudie@gmail.com or send us a voice message at anchor.fm/moves-to-watch, you can do that, and that way we can hear what you think and why you think that Wait Until Dark is a movie to watch before you die. And I can tell Gab that she is wrong and being silly. Sure, yeah, yeah, that would be great. Um, you can also send me money on Venmo. I never say no to that um and you could follow us on instagram we're on instagram at movies to watch before you die i'm on instagram at gab.bolin and i don't know if you care to share your instagram or if you're like one of those people nah follow the movies to watch before you die one okay you can follow me though during the last eight minutes of this picture the theater will be darkened to the legal limit to heighten the terror of the breathtaking climax which takes place in nearly total darkness on the screen if there are sections where smoking is permitted those patrons are respectfully requested not to jar the effect by lighting up during this sequence. And of course, no one will be seated at this time.